the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Today, you're going to hear from Will Godara. If you know that name, it's because he wrote an incredible book, or maybe because you've eaten at one of his restaurants, or you watched his HBO special. I don't know what it is, but I'm so glad to bring you a conversation about unreasonable hospitality and excellence in creating customer obsession. Like, how do you do that? So today's episode is brought to you by the Cure Your Culture Workshop. On May 8th and 9th, I'm hosting a free Cure Your Culture Workshop. Bring your team. You can register at churchcultureworkshop.com. That's churchcultureworkshop.com. And in just a few minutes, we're going to hear from Glue's Chief Solutions Officer, Brad Hill, talk about church trends. So I want you to listen in on that. Well, Will Gadara is the former owner of Make It Nice, the hospitality group with restaurants covering the entire spectrum from fine dining to fast casual, including the number one ranked in the world, 11 Madison Park, Nomad in New York, London, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas, Davies and Brooks in London, and his counter service restaurant, Made Nice. Through Will's leadership, he led 11 Madison Park to its pinnacle, earning numerous industry accolades, including the top spot on the world's 50 best restaurants list, Michelin stars, Wall Street Journal's Innovator Awards, and various James Beard Awards. And if you know what that is, that is the Academy Awards of the restaurant industry, including Outstanding Chef, Outstanding Service, and Outstanding Bar. He's also the co-founder of the Welcome Conference and the Independent Restaurant Coalition. Earlier this year, he published Unreasonable Hospitality through Penguin Random House and Simon Sinek's publishing in print and had his first television show, The Big Brunch, debut on HBO Max with co-host Dan Levy. Fascinating guy, loved his book. One of those that I was really sad was over and I think you're gonna really enjoy this conversation. We break it down and uh, take a good look at it. And hey, if you enjoy this podcast. Would you do me a favor? If you haven't left a rating and review, please do. And would you share it with a friend? Because when you share it, we get to do this again next week and we get to bring it to you for free. Hey, I've got something for you I would love for you to check out. I find often in podcast world, you just kind of listen and you don't jump beyond the podcast platform. If that's you, check this out. I'd love for you to go to churchcultureworkshop.com because I'm running a free Cure Your Culture Workshop to Combat Toxic Culture in the Church. And you may think, well, I don't really have a toxic culture. Mm, You talk to your team or you ever work for somebody who does? Do you know, according to Harvard Business Review, 38% of employees intentionally decrease the quality of their work when there's a bad culture? Did you know that 25% say they take out their frustration on guests or customers? And 66% said that their performance slumped. Well, If you think you're not losing anything by a mediocre or even a harmful culture, uh, think again. So that's why I'm putting together the Cure Your Culture Workshop. It's a free, value-packed, interactive workshop where you're going to learn how to spot and eliminate the toxic elements of your culture, build higher trust on your team, and transform the culture you're creating. It's just two 60-minute live sessions. I'm going to do Q&A. It'll be me there. I'd love to meet you. I'd love to take your questions. Register for free at churchcultureworkshop.com. And if you're listening after May 8th, you can still visit churchcultureworkshop.com to get the replay. But if you're listening in real time, hey, check it out. Get in there live. And recently, I sat down with Brad Hill, the Chief Solutions Officer at Glue. 
With over 20,000 churches now using the Glue platform, Glue has incredible insight into trends. And I asked him, what are some trends he's seeing right now? Here's what he had to say. Yeah, Kerry, I'll give you a really, a really simple one that's powerful. And it has to do with the way we communicate. So a lot of us in our churches still use, do, we do a lot of email. Yeah. Um, we, we do a lot of broadcast. Um, there's two principles, two truths that we've really latched onto. The first is the way God's designed each of us is really to be in, in interaction, in relationship with one other person at a time. You know, we disciple each other, we counsel, we, we teach, we pray for. So um, there's that truth. And then the second is far more pragmatic, and that is stacking up against email, which by the way, Carrie, on a good day, email maybe gets read and opened 40% of the time in our churches, somewhere in that neighborhood. When we contrast it with texting, texting, is more than double. We, we've yeah. typically seen uh, open rates as high as 94% and response rates in the high 80s. So combining these ideas, we're, we're built for relationship and we, we know some things about communication methods. Glue has built these into the platform. So every church can have free texting and certainly you could use it for broadcasting. You could use it for mass comms. But where we really see the power is churches who are getting more relational and using, there's, there's a number of tools from great partners, even some AI-based tools to facilitate things like prayer, discipleship, in, engaging with explorers. And with the churches that are doing this well, we're seeing things like 10x prayer engagement. We're seeing double or more the rate of explorer response. Uh, so this simple idea of relational communications, using the tools people want to use, we think is one of the most simple but powerful ministry innovations that's happening on Glue right now. You can learn more about Glue's free texting program at get.glue.us slash texting. That's get.glue.us slash texting. So with all that said, let's dive into today's conversation with Will Gadara. Will, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. Well, I'm very excited to have you. Uh, I think I told you before we hit recording uh, before we hit record, your book, Unreasonable Hospitality, is hands down one of the favorite books I've read in the last five years. Uh, I was, you know, you, you get a book where you're kind of sad it's over. And I said that to my wife, like normally, you know, there's the podcast prep read and then there's a, no, I'm really going to read this book. And I was like, oh, that's it. Gosh. And it's not a short book, but it was, it was really good. And a huge fan of the big brunch too, that you did with Dan Levy. That was, that was just incredible. So Really thrilled to have you here, but I'd love to start with your dad and your work in restaurants. And maybe you could take us back to that dinner you had, I think you were about 12 years old, at the Four Seasons restaurant that your dad took you to. I'm always interested in what triggers people into their life's work. The origin story, so uh -huh. to say. Uh -huh. You know, so my dad, Frank Gadara, lifelong restaurateur, in addition to being my dad, my best friend, my mentor. Mm. Um, and he was just my hero growing up for, for a ton of different reasons. And I would have wanted to do whatever it is he did for a living because I'm really blessed in, in the closeness of our relationship. And I always wanted to be like him. Mm. Um, my mom, when I was a kid, got sick and ultimately became a quadriplegic. And my my dad was just a superhero 
working restaurant hours, which anyone who doesn't know what that means, it, it means a lot of hours. Yeah, yeah. And in addition to, you know, working 12, 14 hour days, he would always get up early, get my mom out of bed, get her showered, put her in the wheelchair, get her ready for the day, go to work, come back home, do everything with her in reverse and still somehow manage to be an active and engaged father to me. Um, and so I always wanted to be like him. I would go to work with him on Saturdays just to get time with him. And I would play restaurant, um, which meant if he was in the office, I'd set up shop and one of the other offices uh, occupied by someone who didn't work on Saturday and pretend I was an executive in the company. Or <laughs> if he was in one of the restaurants, I would go and work with one of the servers or someone in the kitchen. And um, and so I was always enchanted by restaurants. I was enchanted by the energy I felt when I was in them, the frenetic, the, the, the quasi-chaotic vibe that existed within them, or perhaps more appropriately said, the controlled chaos. Um, but he had one restaurant. It was uh, the company he, he he ran had a restaurant called Brasserie, um, which was in the basement of the Seagram's building in New York. And above that was the Four Seasons. And the Four Seasons is like widely considered the first great American fine dining restaurant. And I would work at Brasserie a lot. And there was always this elusive world above us. And for years, I would ask him to take me there. And finally, on my 12th birthday, he took me to dinner there. And it was just one of those meals that, that changed things for me. Mm-hmm. There's a quote by Maya Angelou, or, well, it's often attributed to her anyway. Uh, People will forget what you say. They'll forget what you do. They'll never forget how you made them feel. And I believe that's one of the, the wisest quotes to summarize the true essence of, uh, of the power of hospitality. And it most certainly applies to my experience that night. I don't remember much about that night. I remember that I made my dad get me one of those blue blazers from Brooks Brothers with the gold buttons because I wanted to uh-huh. feel fancy and grown up for the night. I remember, it's funny how your memory works. I remember the first time I dropped my napkin and the server handed me a new one and called me sir, which has happened countless times since, but I distinctly remember it happening for the first time to me that night. Um, I remember maybe one of the dishes, but more than anything, what I remember about that night was while we were there, everything else in the world ceased to exist. And all that was left was me sitting across the table from the person I respected most in the world. I like to say that when a restaurant is intentional enough in creating the conditions for genuine connection, they have the capacity to put the world on pause for the people in their world. Mm. And I was just hooked. One of the things I've said so many times when I talk to my teams and other people in my industry and other industries is the need for all of us to collectively articulate why our work matters, why the work is important. Because on the difficult days, if you have not named for yourself how you can impact positively the lives of those around you, you won't have anything in your tank. Mm-hmm. And in my world, in, in, in the restaurant business, but I actually believe this applies to so many other industries, I believe 
that we can help people celebrate some of the most important moments of their lives. We can give them the grace, if only for a few hours, to forget about their most difficult moments. We can inspire people to be better versions of themselves through our attention to detail. Or if I'm getting super soapboxy, I believe we can make the world a nicer place by being just really, really nice to everyone that walks through our doors. I believe through hospitality, we can create these magical worlds in a world that needs more magic. And while I didn't articulate it that way then, that's what I felt in that dining room when I was 12. And from that point forward, I knew I wanted to be in the restaurant business. It's interesting. I have a fascination with restaurants, didn't grow up around it, but love taking my team out for a nice dinner if we're on a retreat love hosting people in my backyard, but, you know, we've had Horst Schultze on this podcast from the Ritz Carlton and, mm. and I saw um, some similarities, but also some very big differences between how Horst approaches things, how you approach things. And then had a couple of local restaurateurs north of Toronto, uh, Simon McRae and Darcy McDonnell on the podcast. And uh, they just run a couple of local restaurants near me and uh, they make me feel that way when mm. I go to their restaurants. They have a very a uh, special thing. And, you know, you learn from mentors like your dad, from Danny Myers. Uh, I'm going to get some of the pronunciation wrong here. Danielle Boulud, is it? Or how do you say his Boulud. name? Boulud. Okay. Wolfgang Puck. Uh, what did you learn from your mentors in the field? Um, my gosh, I've learned different things from each one of them, which I think is the appropriate way to... Mm collect mentors, if that's, if that's a reasonable <laughs> yeah. way to articulate it. And by the way, I do think that we should all always be collecting mentors. I don't think you're ever too old to have a mentor. I also don't think you're ever too young to be a mentor. Um, and in collecting them, A, you're giving yourself the ability to to be the most fully realized version of of you and B, I mean, there's no higher praise than telling people that you want to emulate some part of who they are. Mm. Um, in my dad, I learned about integrity. I quote my dad all the time. Yeah, he's in the book a lot. He's in the book. I mean, my, my dad is everything to me. Um, and I... In some ways, I wrote that book on behalf of both of us. Hmm. Um, someone said, hey, your dad needs to write a book. And I said, I think I already took all of his stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one of his quotes is, when faced with challenging circumstances in your life, ask yourself what right looks like hmm. and do that. He's also just old school, grit, perseverance, hard work. Another one of his quotes is, adversity is a terrible thing to waste. Hmm. Life has thrown some hard stuff at my dad. My mother's condition, my dad later got pancreatic cancer and beat it. And never wow. once, never once have I seen him feel bad for himself. He always hmm. looks at adversity directly in the eyes and figures out what he can learn from it, how he can grow from it how the experience can compel him to be a better version of himself. From Danny Meyer, I learned about the importance of giving the people on your team a genuine sense of ownership, empowering them to 
bring all of themselves to the work. Mm. And I worked for Danny at 11 Madison Park before I bought 11 Madison Park from Danny. And I like to say that I felt just as much of an owner before I bought it as I did afterwards. And that was due to the way in which he led. Mm. I also learned from Danny the, the power of language and the importance of taking the time to articulate your core values and your non-negotiables in succinct ways such that the entire team can rally around you. One of my favorite Danny Meyer quotes is, hospitality is a team sport. That it doesn't matter how hospitable you are if you don't invest all of yourself towards creating a culture where everyone on the team is not just willing to be hospitable, but genuinely believes in the spirit of the collective endeavor, then you're not going to get very far because no one person in business when you're serving customers has the capacity to touch very many of them. From Daniel Balud, I learned, perhaps from him more than anyone, the importance of generosity. Daniel Balud has always been one of the most generous people. He's a famous chef, right? He's one of the most famous chefs in the world. And it's not uncommon for successful people to be generous, but I found increasingly that it's very uncommon for successful people to be generous to people who are not yet successful. Can you tell the story from when you were a college student? That is such a powerful story. It was Daniel Balud, right? Who came to your dorm room? Yeah, so um, I was in a class called Guest Chefs at Cornell, Mm -hmm. um, which was just the coolest class. It it was a class (laughs) where um, a, a chef from somewhere in America would come up and you would put on a dinner with them that people who lived in Ithaca would 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 buy tickets to go and experience. So you're actually putting on like a proper meal for the public. And you're doing it under the tutelage of a chef. And every semester, three chefs would come up. And for one of the chefs, you worked as a cook. For one of the chefs, you worked as a server. And for one of the chefs, you worked on the management team. I was on the management team for Daniel Balud. And I was in charge of marketing. Now, every semester, one of the chefs was very famous and the other two were, you know, up and coming. Daniel Balud was the very famous chef my semester. And so being in charge of marketing, I didn't have to market it. It was going to sell out immediately (laughs) after it was announced. And so I just decided that my role was not marketing Daniel Balud to the diners, but marketing Cornell to Daniel Balud. Oh, wow. And so I just decided that I was in charge of welcoming him and his team and being hospitable. And um, I borrowed the nicest car that one of my classmates had. One of the classmates, she had wealthy parents. She had an Audi A4. And so I picked them oh, all yeah. up from the airport in that Audi. And I, um, his two chefs came the day before him and I took them out to have burgers. And they went to my house, 130 College Avenue, and we all had beers. And then Danielle came the next day and they're like, Danielle, this kid's awesome. You know, I, I like hung out with them. And these guys, by the way, for me, they were they were heroes, but they were only like five years older than I was at the time. I didn't realize it then. Anyway, we had an amazing dinner. And afterwards, um, I threw a giant party at my house, 130 College Ave, and Daniel Balud was there. And um, 
at about midnight or something, Danielle and I left the party, went back to the hotel kitchen on campus, broke in, took pots, pans, eggs, caviar, truffles, mushrooms, and Daniel Ballou started making scrambled eggs with mushrooms and truffles for about a hundred <laughs> inebriated college kids. <laughs> um, and at the end of the night, or early the next morning, he said, hey, if, you, if you're in New York, come see me. You've been so gracious in welcoming me here. I want to welcome you to my place. Wow. Um, my mother, who was became sick when I was about four years old and wasn't meant to live past me being 10, 11, just kept on living. Um, and it became clear, I mean, you talk about the power of, of perseverance or deciding that you want something badly enough to overcome any reasonable physical condition. It became clear that she wanted to see me graduate college. Wow. And um, she ended up passing away the day after I graduated college. And... Um, I was going to Spain that summer for an externship. And my dad and I went to Danielle Balud's restaurant the night before I left for Spain. And I emailed him and I said, hey, is there any chance I could actually come to your restaurant? Not only did he invite us into the restaurant, but he put us at this amazing table. There's this one table in this room that sits above the kitchen with a giant glass window. So you're overlooking the kitchen and he served us every single course himself, stayed until the wee hours, did not even give us a check. Um, when I talk about the nobility of serving other people, at the Four Seasons, I learned how a restaurant can help you celebrate beautiful moments. At Danielle, that night, I learned about how it can give you the grace to forget about the hard moments, because during without question, one of the, if not the saddest moment in my dad and my life that night was one of the greatest nights I can ever imagine having. Wow. And here I was, I was a college kid hmm. and Daniel Blue had comped me a meal. And so back to the original question from him, I learned that you don't decide who you want to be generous and gracious towards. You're either a gracious and generous person or you're not. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. But you're right. A lot of wealthier people will be gracious to people who can get them something, give them something. But for Daniel Balud to find this college kid and kind of take you under his wings and cook eggs and caviar at one o'clock in the morning for a hundred semi inebriated college students. <laughs> and then to give you and your dad that moment in a sea of grief. Wow. So that, that is very, very shaping for you. You tell your story in the book, which is fascinating. We won't have time to get into all of it today, but early on you understood the power of little gestures and gifts. Uh, for example, the feeding the parking meter story. Can you tell that story? That was, it's such a small thing, but I'm like, gosh, I didn't even have a category for that. And uh, I'm just trying to think about all the leaders listening who don't run restaurants, which is 99% of the listenership here. But I think the unreasonableness of the hospitality that you 
suggest is something we can all embrace and feeding the, the, the parking meter is so powerful. Yeah. And, and you know, what's interesting is the parking meter was like super early days. Was. It was yeah. that early in my career as I was trying to wrap my head around what all of this could mean. Was that um, when you were at the museum? That was when I was at Tabla. That was my oh, first restaurant okay. job in New yeah. York City, but I was running the front door and, um, you know, people would come. This is this is back in the day, right? I don't yeah. think there's coin-operated meters anymore, or at least they're much less prevalent. They're certainly not in New York City. But um, people would come in, and it, it happened organically the first time, hmm. where I greeted someone, I was seating them, I was talking to them. They had come from Jersey, and I was like, oh, how'd you get here? You took the train? You know, just chatting them up. And they're like, Oh, no, we drove. I was like, oh, where'd you park? They're like, oh, at a meter right down the street. And I knew those meters. I'd parked there before. And there was no way to give that meter enough coins to actually make it through the entire dinner. <laughs> Fair enough. And so just organically, the first time I said, hey, well, let me know where your car is. And I'll make sure we keep the meter filled so you can just not have to worry about that and just sit here and enjoy the night. Um. I always say that there's few things more energizing than the look on someone's face when they receive a gift you're responsible for giving them. Mm. And when you do something naturally or organically and you see that look, that is the world telling you to slow down for a moment and systemize it. Mm -hmm. Because if you can make more people feel like that through taking a few simple steps, you know, athletes always go to the tapes and they've had a bad game to see what they could have done better. They don't often enough go to the tapes and they've had a good game to see what they did well to make sure they keep on doing that. It's how you put intention to intuition. It's how you systemize moments of, of organic innovation. Um, and so we just made it a system at the restaurant. Going forward, every host, when they were seating someone, just had to chat them up and try to figure out how they got there. And if they drove, figure out where they parked. And if they parked at a meter, we would just do that automatically. It cost us, what, 75 cents? Yeah. And I guarantee you, from the get-go, before they'd even sat down at their table, they were inclined to want to love the rest of the meal because they felt seen and they felt served. And, and this is like the presiding theory of, of the entire book, it made our team happy too. Because it feels good to make other people feel good. And we gave them an easy-to-deploy system to bring joy to other people. Well, and it's so counterintuitive. I imagine you probably had the old, the odd customer reach into their pocket and say, you know, here's, here's some quarters, here's a dollar, like go feed the meter. And you're like, no, 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 this is on us. Yeah. And yeah. Th that gesture just feels so magnanimous. One of my favorite things we do here on the podcast is, you know, I, I started this as a hobby eight years ago and I never in a million years thought we'd hit the kind of numbers that we've hit on this podcast. So we kind of made this thing early on where if we hit a milestone, the listeners who are responsible for it would celebrate. So I think we'll hit 30 million soon in downloads and we'll probably do another giveaway. We'll probably do a Starbucks giveaway. So we buy $1,000 in Starbucks gift cards, which is a lot of money, but not really. And then we parse it out over the course of the day on social. And we say, hey, if you're a podcast listener, listen in. Uh, just follow me on social and we'll buy you a latte. So people are getting their flat whites or cortados or macchiatos <laughs> or whatever. Uh, honestly, Will, it's a, it's a $4, $7 drink. That's yes. it. You know? 
the level of gratitude that we get when people tag us, thank us, you would think we gave them a million dollars. And it's one of it's one of my favorite days. Of we get to see all the tags, all the people, and it's like a five dollar Starbucks card. And they they just thought it was the best thing ever. Like those little gestures go a long way. Well, yeah, and I mean, listen, I always say that there are people at the holidays who like to give gifts and those that like to receive them. Um, but both are just as selfish because the people giving the gifts, their gift is the look on the person's face when they receive it. Yeah. You know, like over time, my restaurant became known for these one size fits one gestures, these over the top ideas that were very, very specific to the people receiving them. But, you know, in the meters, in the the feet of the meter and countless others, what we also learned was that you can systemize improvisational hospitality through simple pattern recognition. Anyone that serves people and I would say, of the people listening to this, just statistically speaking, at least 80% of them are serving people in some way, shape, or form. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, if you look closely enough at your relationships, at your business, and choose to be intentional in pursuit of those relationships, you're going to find simple patterns. And if you seize on them, you can do extraordinary things. Like in the restaurant, um, people get engaged a lot. Mm-hmm. And at any restaurant, if you get engaged in the restaurant, they pour you a glass of free champagne, right? That's just right. kind of the status quo. Um, but I always thought, okay, if everyone else is doing that, we need to do more, right? It's not special anymore. The moment someone gets used to a <laughs> gift, it's no longer a gift. It's an expectation. And so um, we systemized over-the-top gestures there. Tiffany and co. had offices across the park and I started knocking on doors until I found the right person and convinced them to give me 1,000 boxes of two champagne flutes and the baby blue box. And If you got engaged at our restaurant, we put down two champagne flutes and gave you free champagne like you'd get anywhere else. But what you didn't notice is your champagne flutes were a little bit different than everyone else's. Wow. And by the time you left, we had washed those champagne flutes, put them back in the box. And when you were on your way out the door, we gave you that box to give you a memory from a special night and to thank you for trusting us to celebrate that special night with. It was a win for us. It was a win for the guests. And it was a win for Tiffany, too, because I guarantee you a lot of those glasses ended up on registries. But (laughs) yeah. And we did that stuff for everything, hangover kits, locked and loaded, ready to go for people who are drinking too much or lists of breakfast spots because people would always ask us where the best places to get breakfast were. Yeah, you kind of created a a business size user guide like FAQs. It's like, what are the best breakfast places? And you just hand out this little card that's like, here's three of our favorite spots, go. We We had a toolkit in the back with about 80, 90 different things in it. And they were all just based off pattern recognition. And we just gave everyone on our team a bunch of stuff that was easy to deploy, designed to make people realize that we cared enough about them to listen to what they were saying and then to do something with what we heard. So there's a bunch of different directions I could go into. I think I'm going to go here first because I want to come back to uh, hospitality versus uh, excellent service and what the distinction is. But 
Um, throughout the book, you kind of say you're a stickler for detail. You notice mm-hmm. everything, a little maybe obsessive qualities or characteristics will. Yes. And I think a lot of leaders listening to this can relate to that going, yeah, I notice when every light bulb is burned out, when the music is too loud, too soft, when something is slightly off key, when it didn't land the way I wanted it to, whatever they're leading, they're sticklers for details. It's like, hey, there's a flaw in the paint. You guys paint that wall, right? That yes. kind of thing. Um, that can be a strength and that can be a weakness, but you, you managed to figure out how to leverage that as a strength to get three Michelin stars to become the best restaurant in the world, et cetera, et cetera. Can you talk about some of the things that you would notice that maybe often got missed in restaurants and how you use that to your advantage? Well, yes. Uh, I'm going to add something else. Yeah, I mean, I I, I am obsessive. I notice absolutely everything. It's it's a it's a blessing and a curse for sure. (laughs) I I feel unsettled in an environment that isn't perfect or as close to it as humanly possible. Um, and so, I mean, when you're trying to have all of the Michelin stars on the four, I mean, that's just a strength, right? Because mm-hmm. everything needs to be at a certain level of excellence in order to even play the game. And if you want to get to the top of it, you need to be at the highest level of excellence. I actually don't believe that being obsessive in pursuit of details and excellence is a weakness. I don't think it, it only becomes a weakness if you're not matching your level of obsession to the details with a similarly obsessive pursuit of hospitality. Mm. Right? Mm. I think it's, Mm. there is only good if you walk into a room and see a light bulb being out. Right. That's a good thing, right? Like we should be looking out for the details always. It becomes bad when the only thing you ever tell your team about are the things that are wrong and you don't invest just as much, if not more time telling them all the things that are right. Oh, wow. And with excellence with the guest, it is not bad to be maniacally focused on every detail of the experience being perfect. It's only bad when you use all of your bandwidth up on that and don't invest just as much unreasonable effort in making sure that you're making them feel really, really good along the way. Because guess what? I believe excellence is a prerequisite for hospitality, but people don't remember what you said. They don't remember what they do. They remember how you made them feel. And excellence is not how you make people feel good. It's hospitality. Yeah. And that seemed to be the difference between you moving from a four-star restaurant in the New York Times, which I had no idea there were only five in New York City. Is that right? Five four-star restaurants? I mean, it goes, it kind of goes up and down. Um, I think at the most it's ever been seven. I'm not sure exactly how many it is right now. Wow. So, I mean, three stars is a big deal, right? If you're a three-star restaurant, that's a huge deal. And then um, Michelin stars too, right? The difference between, you had multiple rankings. So it was a four-star New York Times restaurant you eventually, 11 Madison Park became a three-star Michelin restaurant, which we'll explain in a few minutes for those who don't know the Michelin 
thing. And then there was an award where you became the best restaurant in the world. You went from number 50 to number one over a number of years. Do you want to explain, uh, just so people who may not follow that kind of rating, what's behind all those ratings? And then I want to talk about how you turned it from, you know, just to focus on dining and excellence and execution to unreasonable hospitality seemed to propel you into that next stratosphere to best in the world. For sure. So, okay, in New York, the New York Times, in America for you, I mean, Michelin only came to America maybe 15 years ago. Sure. Um, sure. And most listeners are American to this yeah. show. So. But in America, in New York, it was New York Times has always been the arbiter of what the best restaurants are. And for many, many years, it's not the case anymore, but the best restaurants in New York were also the best restaurants in America. That's right. not the case right. anymore. Now there's great restaurants everywhere. Um, and so getting four stars from the New York Times was the highest pinnacle of achievement in American restaurants. Then Michelin came around, and Michelin was that in Europe, right? If you had three Michelin stars, that meant you were one of the great, great, great restaurants in the world. And restaurants in France would pursue that for decades um, before they ever got their third star. Um, And so those were, for a long, long time, the two. If you had three stars for Michelin and four stars in the New York Times, you were at the top of the at the top of the pyramid. But about, I'll be honest, COVID has destroyed my ability to reference time. Time is just a construct to me now. But let's say like about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it could be 30 years ago at this point. (laughs) Who knows? At whatever point, they started the 50 best. And it was a jury of a thousand well-regarded chefs, journalists, uh, restaurateurs, sommeliers from all over the world who basically came up with a ranking one through 50 of the best restaurants in the world. And it was a powerful thing for a couple of reasons. One, it was the first time restaurants were ranked against one another globally. Two, for a restaurant like mine that had four stars from the New York Times and three Michelin stars, it gave you something else to aspire to achieve. Mm-hmm. Anyone that's really, really good in a creative field does not do it for the accolades. But if anyone doesn't say that the accolades help to motivate them, I think they're lying. <laughs> Especially enough. when you're leading an entire team of people, like that kind of thing on the horizon that you can rally people around trying to achieve is, is powerful. Um, and it keeps people from resting on their laurels. Um, the thing about the 50 best is Okay, it's patently absurd to say one restaurant is the best restaurant in the world. What that list acknowledges is not the maniacal, you know, pursuit of perfection. That list measures impact. The number one restaurant on that list is the restaurant that's having the greatest impact on the world of restaurants at any given time. Wow. Okay. And you were three for three, four stars for the New York Times three-star Michelin, and there's only a handful of those around the world, right? Like not, not a lot. And then number one restaurant in the world. And if I followed the narrative in the book, right, what seemed to make the difference for you, because you can drill down on service, you can drill down on ambiance in the restaurant, you can drill down on the quality of food. But I mean, once you hit a certain level, those are all table stakes. Like you just have to have those. It was the unreasonable hospitality 
that really put you propelled you to to the third Michelin star and uh, best in the world designation. Do you want to talk about that moment where you kind of decided that it was hospitality that was going to define you, not just the food and the service? Yeah. So um, the first year we were added to that list, we got the letter, you've been added to the list of the 50 best restaurants in the world, come to London in June. And it's a big deal. Like mm. this, this this elusive goal that we had. And finally it was starting to happen. And Went to London, got all dressed up in our tuxedos. It's it's not dissimilar to the Oscars, um, except at the Oscars, if you're nominated, you want them to call your name. Yeah. At the 50 yeah. best, if you're in the room, you know you're one of the 50 best. You just don't know where on the list you fall. And they start at 50, they count down to one. So you don't want them to call your name. Yeah, you don't want to be number one. Of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the first year we get there and I'm trying to figure out where on the list we're going to be. And I'm, I, mean, I guess, number 35. Like, we're one of the best restaurants in America. We're going to be, we're going to do well here. And, um, and they kicked it off, and I'm sure there was some amount of thank yous and welcomes before they started, but all I really remember was the the debonair British MC saying, at number 50, a new entry from New York City, 11 Madison Park. <laughs> and I uttered an expletive under my breath and looked down. But I didn't realize, because it was the first year I was there, and we were the first restaurant that was called, is they train a camera on you and project your image in front of the entire auditorium. Oh, and it's been everyone so else. you're angry. Well, but it's been everyone else, regardless of whether they're happy or not with where they fell, they pretend to be happy. I didn't know to pretend to be happy, and so I just looked like I'd gotten kicked in the groin. Oh. And left the party early, went back to the hotel, and started going through the stages of grief and processing the whole thing. Um Simmered on anger for a while. Yeah. We had amazing food. Our service was technically perfect. Our room was gorgeous. How did we come in last place? They're wrong. Until I realized that list was about impact, and we had been extraordinary curators collecting ideas and executing them flawlessly, but we hadn't done anything to change the conversation. When I looked at people who had topped that list before, it was a chef from Spain who pioneered molecular gastronomy. He created a whole new approach to cooking. And by the way, that approach to cooking has infiltrated restaurants around the world. Whether you realize it or not, when you're at your local Applebee's, they're probably using a technique that this guy in Spain developed. <laughs> um, there was a chef in Copenhagen that pioneered the whole idea of like foraging for ingredients and making the experience like hyper-local in terms of the ingredients you're consuming. Um, those chefs and everyone else that topped the list before us became number one because they were unreasonable in pursuit of moving the conversation forward. They were unreasonable in pursuit of the product they were serving. They were unreasonable in pursuit of the technique, the plating, the ingredients, the sourcing, the training. They were unreasonable in pursuit of what needed to change. That night, when my dad was, when I was a kid, my dad gave me, I'm, I'm at my desk in the country right now. He gave me this paperweight. It says, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? And I have, I've had it on my desk since I was a little kid. And he always told me that far too many people refuse to answer that question honestly out loud for fear if they do and they don't achieve whatever the goal is, they'll let themselves and those around them down. But if you don't have the confidence and conviction to say your most audacious goal, it's unlikely you'll ever achieve it. Hmm. And so that night in a cocktail napkin, I wrote, we will be number one in the world. 
But then underneath that, I needed to write what our impact was going to be. And if they all made their impact by focusing on what they were serving, I wanted to be focused on the way we made people feel when we served them. Mm. The food, the service, the room, they were table stakes. We needed to be good at those things to get on the list. But to top the list, we needed to do something else. I wanted to be unreasonable in pursuit of the one thing that would never change, which is the human desire to feel seen, to feel cared for, to feel a sense of belonging. And so on that cocktail napkin, I wrote unreasonable hospitality. That's really cool. So give us some examples of what unreasonable hospitality became and how that is different than just excellent food, great service, attentiveness to you know, everybody hates it when the check doesn't come at the right time. And, and you, you should tell the story of what you do with checks, which I think is brilliant. Um, or, you know, the server just forgets you somewhere between the appetizers and the mains. Or, you know, I waited on tables. I consider it to be the hardest job I've ever done. I was a guy who would show up and go, hey, who had the chicken? And I got a lot of tips just because people thought I probably couldn't really uh, survive yeah, in the need, world. You this know? guy really needs a little oh, help. He needs some help. He needs a lot of help, Will. I'll tell you. I, w- I wouldn't last long in, in your company. But um, yeah, like help, help us understand that because I think we've all dined out hundreds of times. And uh, I think what you're sharing is so rare, but so beautiful and so needed. I mean, the journey to figuring out what that... What that- what unreasonable hospitality meant was, was a long one. And like, I didn't actually know what it meant when I first wrote it down, but I think that's okay. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes it's fine to start pursuing a goal before you fully understand it. In fact, I think far too many people spend so much time trying to clearly articulate a vision that they never start to pursue it. I think if you feel enough of a connection to an idea, start pursuing and it will reveal itself to you along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got back to the restaurant, We started just doing random things, looking at elements of our service and figuring out how, I mean, you look at the food we were serving, we would spend two weeks preparing a duck that we were serving. We were unreasonable in pursuit of this one bite of food. Why couldn't I be just as unreasonable in pursuit of all the little details of how we engaged with the people once they walked through our doors? And one of the first things I did was I got my entire team together and we actually charted out the guest experience, mapping out every single touch point in the experience. Because I realized if we couldn't isolate every opportunity we had to impact people, then we wouldn't have the ability to elevate each one of those moments. Hmm. Um, it was in that time that we figured out the thing I told you about the champagne flutes. It was in that time where we got rid of the podium at the front door. Oh yeah. Talk about that. That was really powerful. Well, you know, you like when you walk into a restaurant, that moment, that welcome, that's everything. Mm-hmm. Right? That is, it's literally everything. When you go to a friend's house, they throw open the door, they greet you by name, they give you a hug, they invite you in, they take your coat. It's organic, it's human. And then you walk into most restaurants, there's a person standing behind a literal barrier. To human connection, like a physical object with the glare of a computer screen. You say your name, they ask you what your name is, that you say your name, they stab around at a computer screen, turn to the person next to them, say, take them to table 23 or something, and and you walk away. It's, it's the least human way to begin an experience that I believe should feel like one of the most human exchanges of the day. And 
So we've figured out how to get rid of the podium. Um, and it's, it'll take too long to explain it here. Hmm. Um, but when you walked in, there was just a person standing there. And they recognized you when you walked in. They greeted you by name, even if you'd never been to the restaurant before. And then someone came over and just took you and brought you into the table. Yeah, they would say, hey, Mr. Newhoff, right? Yeah. And you can read the book to figure out how we did it. Here's the thing. It wasn't hard. It just required being willing to try harder. Hmm. Um, The thing we did at the end with the check, again, not hard. Just being willing to try harder and to lead with generosity. The check is like one of the hardest moments in the entire restaurant experience. Because for anyone who has not worked at a restaurant, you can probably still relate to this. The moment you ask for the check... Time slows to a glacial pace. And if it takes too long to leave when you're ready to leave, the restaurant can undo all the goodwill they've built over the meal that preceded that. That is such a pet peeve of mine. Yeah, I hear you. And by the way, when people ask for the check, it's normally when the team is really, really busy. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, of course. They're probably like, why did he ask now? Right. Yeah, I mean, but it, that's just that's just life, right? And at the same time, you can never drop the check on a table before they're ready for it because then they get the impression that you're trying to get them to leave. Mm-hmm. So it's like one of the most pernicious problems in the restaurant business. And for years and years and years, people have just tried to solve it by just trying harder, right? Just trying to be a little mm-hmm. more perfect. Um through devoting time to be intentional and how we could elevate that experience and make people feel good along the way. We came up with the following. When we knew you were done, we knew you were done. You just hadn't asked for the check. We would walk over to your table with a bottle of cognac. And we put a glass in front of you and the person you were dining with. We'd pour a splash of cognac into each one of your glasses. And then we'd put the bottle on the table. And we'd say... Hey, this is some cognac. It's with our compliments. I'm going to leave the bottle here. Help yourself to as much as you'd like. And by the way, the check is right here whenever you're ready for it. Brilliant. So now the check was there. No one would ever have to wait for it again. And there was no way they could ever think we were trying to rush them out. We had just given them an entire bottle of free booze. Exactly. Exactly. And by using that as the solution, we ended the experience with a dose of extraordinary generosity. And I always talk about how like the greatest experiences are ones where it feels like you're at a friend's house for dinner. One of my favorite moments at being in a friend's house for dinner is the end of the night when there's just a little bit of the bottle of wine left on the table and someone reaches over and grabs it and pours what's left into everyone's glasses. And I wanted that to happen. In a meal where we were waiting on you hand and foot, I wanted you to be the last person that poured a glass. Cool. Um, and so we did a bunch of stuff like that. We kept going further and further. And then one day on a busier than normal lunch service, and this story has become perhaps like the most told story from the book, but it's important to tell for those who haven't heard it because it, it's like it was a pivotal moment in the process. Um, I was helping the servers in the dining room and I was clearing a table um, of fours appetizers. And they were like lovers of restaurants on vacation in New York, heading to the airport to go back home after their meal. And I overheard them talking 
about the amazing trip they'd had, talking about all the restaurants they'd been to. Now they're at a little Madison Park, but then one of them jumped in and said, yeah, but you know what? The only thing we didn't have was a New York City hot dog. Hmm. And it was like one of those light bulb moments. And I ran out to the hot dog cart uh, on like the corner. Like literally a, a like cheap street hot dog. Yeah, a, a street hot dog. So I went out to the cart. They're selling them for $2, bought a hot dog, ran back into the restaurant, somehow convinced my chef to serve it. Um, we cut it up into four perfect pieces, adding a little swish of ketchup and a swish of mustard. And before their final savory course, which was the duck I was saying before, and Honey lavender glaze, dry aged for two weeks. Duck. I brought out what we in New York call a dirty water dog and put it on the table. Um, and I explained it. I said, I want to make sure you don't go home with any culinary regrets. And they freaked out. <laughs> I'd served foie gras, lobster, wagyu beef, all of it over the course of my career. I'd never seen anyone react to anything I'd served like they did to the hot dog. To the thing I was saying with athletes before, I went back to the tapes. Okay, what happened so that that could happen? And what do we need to start doing to make sure it happens all the time? And, and it was three things. The, the, the first was it required being present, which um, is a way overused thing these days. But right. for me, being present is just caring so much about the person you're with that you stop caring about everything else you need to do. I think so often in work and in life, we have such long to-do lists that we aren't we're not able to slow down for long enough to actually listen to the people around us, the things they're saying and, and all the things they're not saying. Mm-hmm. Second, it required the notion that we should take what we do seriously, but we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously. I love that. Too often in customer service, we let these self-imposed standards get in the way of us giving the people around us the things that will make them the most happy. Mm-hmm. A hot dog in a four-star restaurant is sacrilegious until you look at the way it made them feel. <laughs> and then third, the notion that if if genuine hospitality is about making people feel seen, the best way to do that is not to treat them like a commodity, but as a unique individual. I believe I could have given that table a bottle of free champagne and caviar, and it would not have had the same impact as the $2 hot dog because it would not have been specific to them. Yeah. Um, and it's not like then you started giving out hot dogs to every table, right? That was just their story. I don't think that ever happened again. It was just that one table. But here's the cool part. And this is where the philosophy actually transformed the restaurant. Was me looking at something I had done, which by the way, made me super happy, right? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Filled my gas tank. And then turning around and giving everyone on my team the permission and the resources to start doing it themselves. Empowering them to come up with their own ideas, not to have to seek approval from me to execute one of the ideas. They had a budget, they had human support, and then we were on fire. That's when unreasonable hospitality really took root. And we started doing humble gestures like the hot dog, all the way up to crazy gestures like creating beach scenes in our private dining room for a couple whose beach vacation was canceled. And we were doing that kind of stuff every single night. And the power of it was remarkable. A, 
because we were making people happier than they'd ever been at a restaurant before. People don't collect things as much anymore. They collect experiences. And our opportunity, or perhaps even responsibility, is to give people a memory that they can relive over and over and over again, such that it ends up being an experience worth collecting. Hmm. But it was also great for our team because for the first time, they weren't just serving plates of food that someone else had created. They were coming up with their own ideas and those ideas were directly impacting the experience. They had agency. They were willing to give so much of more of themselves to the experience because they were actually helping to create the experience. Um, we had taken salespeople and turned them into product designers. Um, and then the last thing I'll say, I know there's been a long answer, is the team was also really happy because they were making other people really happy. Yeah. By the way, anyone listening here? A little, little bit of background, background noise. My daughter is just having the time of her life. She woke up from her nap early. Oh, so I fantastic. apologize to the listener at home, but it's in pursuit of a two-year-old girl feeling unbridled joy. That's wonderful. Um, <laughs> you know, so many companies right now are struggling to keep their teams fully staffed. Or they're struggling with the people on their teams, like going through workplace burnout. And a lot of people are trying to solve that through the same things, just giving people a little bit more time off. Which I think is important to have work-life balance, but I think it's insufficient because if all work does is burn you out, then an extra day off just gives you a little bit more time to restore yourself such that you can come in and get burnt out all over again. Mm -hmm. um, creating an environment of hospitality where everyone on the team gets the beautiful re-energizing feeling of bestowing graciousness, I think is one of the most sustainable ingredients you can add to a culture. Let's talk about how you got your team engaged because, I mean, I think a restaurant can be very siloed, right? The kitchen does what the kitchen does. The bus people do what the bus people do. Um, servers, managers, you seem to be able to get everybody working together, deeply engaged, coming up with solutions and even owning, you know, all of the ideas behind unreasonable hospitality. I know it took a number of years, but how did that, how did that happen? What'd you do? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think there's a few different, there's a lot that went into that, but yeah. I think the biggest lever goes back to what I was saying about empowerment. That the more ownership people feel over the direction you're going, the more inclined they are to work hard to help you get there. Um, I think this is a human thing, but it's exacerbated generationally. That, I mean, being a great leader... Once upon a time, all it required was being the person in the room with the confidence and conviction to say, this is where we're going. Right, right. Then over time, that wasn't enough for people anymore. They wanted to be inspired why they should want to go there. Now, I don't think that's even enough anymore. I think people want to feel like they have a hand in deciding how you're going to get there. And by the way, I can relate to that. It's much more fun when you feel like the people who you work for care enough about your opinion to take the time to listen to it. And as a leader, 
It's more strategic because the collective brain power, intelligence, and creativity of many will always be that much greater than that of one or two people at the top of the hierarchy. Early on, we recognized this and we started doing strategic planning meetings where, you know, for a day or two every year, we'd close the restaurant and invite every single person on the team in for a day or two of brainstorming. We'd remind people of our mission statement, give them the vision statement for that year and the strategies we wanted to pursue to help us achieve it. And then we'd break the team up into a bunch of different focused groups and say, how are we going to do it? Give us specific, actionable ideas. And out of those meetings came many of the ideas that put our restaurant on the map and helped bring us to the top. Mm -hmm. And we made sure when someone came up with an idea and we put it into practice and it worked to give them all of the credit. Yeah, you, you really emphasize that because often a general manager would take credit for it, but you're like, no, 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 no. That was, you know, Keith over in beverages or that was Katie who was doing this. Uh, it, tell me about what that did for your team when you put them in the spotlight. I think it's, I mean, it's a win, win, win. A, it feels good to be celebrated for work that you've done, right? Yeah. Like, the, yeah. the, like, and so why would you deprive someone of that? To serve your own ego? To pretend that you did it all? I mean, mm-hmm. in doing that, A, you're showing your insecurity that you need mm-hmm. to pretend to do everything. B, you're depriving the team of the extraordinarily addictive feeling of being celebrated for doing something well. And by the way, there are good addictions. That's a good addiction. You want people to be addicted to, to doing great stuff, right? They're going to want to yeah. do more of it. Um, see, the more people on my team that potential customers were reading about, the more people that worked there that could be recognized when someone walked into the room. That made the restaurant mm-hmm. better too. I can't be there all the time. But if I'm not there, if my chef's not there... But then you recognize the guy that you just read about in, you know, Wine Spectator. Now you feel like you had a piece of something awesome. Hmm. Um, I also think, like, listen, at the end of the day, I got plenty of press. I get plenty of press. I don't need to be celebrated for for everything. And in fact, I would rather be celebrated as the person who helped unlock other people's potential than someone that was just good as an individual. Mm. You know, you look at some of the great coaches, you look at Popovich, right? Like he's not celebrated for the fact that he's the one that scored the game ending three pointer. He's celebrated as the guy that created the conditions where his team could thrive. Yeah. Yeah. So um, how do you deal, like we talked a lot about critics, the New York Times, Michelin star, uh, best restaurant in the world. We talked about that, but what do you do with a customer who comes in complaining? I mean, that's something every leader has to deal with. And it was funny. I mean, I'm sure this was the case when you still owned 11 Madison Park, but uh, obviously I Googled it and uh, checked out some of the Google reviews. And, you know, you've got lots of five stars and then you get the one guy who's like, you know, the food was oversalted, one star. How do, you, how do you deal with that as a restaurateur? Because any author has dealt with the one star reviews, any leader deals with one star reviews with that grumpy customer who doesn't matter what you do, they could be the best restaurant in the world, they're having a miserable time. 
What do you do with those people? Well, let me answer it two ways. One, my perspective on criticism, on feedback rather, is to read all of it, Mm. all of it. Um, If you're in the business of serving people, um, the day you stop reading feedback, you're getting real close to irrelevance. Mm. That said, I don't change something every time someone doesn't like something I do, right? Because if you try to be all things to all people, then you lose your point of view and you can't be great unless you have a point of view. Mm. Um, I mean, in one sense, you can't let the haters get to you. Yeah, yeah. But in another sense, I mean, this is the cool thing about a restaurant versus a book. Um. I don't think I have any one-star reviews on my book on Amazon, but if I did, awesome. I can't do anything about it, right? It's anonymous. I don't know who did it. There's nothing, I can't react in any way, right? Mm-hmm. In a restaurant, you know when people aren't liking it while they're still in the room. And I actually believe that if, if you love hospitality enough to gamify it, that presents the best opportunities to have the time of your life and to do whatever it takes to turn them around Danny Meyer, another one of my favorite quotes from him is, um, write a great next chapter. I mean, I think many people can relate to this, that in a lot of businesses, some of the biggest regulars, some of the most raving fans are ones that started by complaining. And it was what the business did to turn the experience around that turned them into fans for life. Do you have an example of that? I mean, plenty. Like, uh-huh. but uh-huh. you know, like I remember when after we were number fifty in the world, um, we were we were still doing because this was coming out of the the '09 recession, right? So we were doing this twenty eight dollar two course lunch. Because we were doing okay at dinner, but it was really hard to get people in for lunch. And so we were doing like a really inexpensive two-course lunch. And this German couple came into the restaurant. They had been eating at um, the 50 best restaurants all over the world. And now that we were on the list, they came to visit us. And Mm. we were doing like this. One of the entrees was a plate of pasta with Meyer lemon and crab. And it was just a simple pasta dish. And they walked in and had the pasta dish and they called me over. They're like, how can you pretend to be one of the top 50 restaurants in the world? You're just serving us a plate of pasta. Um, and they were mean about it. Yeah. Okay. And I think when people are mean, they grow accustomed to the person they're being mean to making the decision that that person no longer deserves their highest level of hospitality. Wow. But instead, I always choose to give people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they're just being mean because they're having a hard day. Maybe the person that is actually the rudest is the one that needs my hospitality more than anyone else in the room. Man. And so I just leaned in and I forget exactly what I did with them, whether I went into the kitchen and we still only charged them $28, but we served them like a five-course tasting menu that we were doing at dinner that night because I, was, I took it as an opportunity and a challenge. I was like, wait, no. Like, 
in the most generous, gracious way in my mind. I was like, screw you. You are not leaving unhappy tonight (laughs) (laughs) or today. Saw it as a challenge. Yeah. And that couple came in twice a year, every single year for the next like seven or eight years. Really? Wow. Yeah. And I love that idea of make the charitable assumption. One of the values in our company is uh, believe the best. We just want you to believe the best. Like there's a charitable assumption. I think you say in the book, like if a server is late, you kind of said, oh, you're late. Are you okay? Right. Did something happen? You get caught in traffic. Are you sick or whatever, rather than where were you? Um, But you found that to be a much better approach. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anything else on making the charitable assumption? No, I just think it, one of the things I talk about, which pertains to a lot of different things, is slow down to speed up. Mm -hmm. And when someone makes you feel a certain way, that's an opportunity to slow down, take a beat before you react, take a deep breath, and make sure that whatever the circumstances may be, that you'll still be proud of how you reacted. Um, the, the example I always use with my team is like, okay, if someone comes in and they're acting like a jerk, okay, maybe they're just a jerk. Maybe that's the case, right? And there's nothing we can do to turn it around. Or maybe on their way into the restaurant, they learn that their wife was filing for divorce. Um, and you never know which one it is. And so why not just make the choice to, as you say, believe the best. Hmm. Hmm. So um, let's talk about budget. You, you know, there's a lot of people who run nonprofits listening to this. Others who are saying, well, if I had one of the 50 best restaurants in the world and I can do, you know, hundred dollar entrees or whatever, tasting menus, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, I would be able to do unreasonable hospitality as well, but you argue that's not the case. How do you do it on a budget? How do you make sure that you, I know know some of that's an attitude, but can you drill down for people who are trying to figure out, okay, how can I be outrageously, unreasonably hospitable if I don't have a giant budget? I mean, so I'll say a few things. One, the hot dog costs two bucks. So (laughs) let's not get carried away with with how expensive the restaurant was, right? Like, Uh I don't think it's Uh not the cost of the gesture that that counts. It's how it makes people feel. Um, I believe you need to earn the right to do it. I call it the rule of 95.5, where you manage your money like a maniac 95% of the time to earn the ability to then spend the last 5%, quote, foolishly, in pursuit of hospitality. I used to have meetings with my team where we would get the entire management team and spend two hours figuring out how we could save $100 a week. Not that hard, Hmm. right? That's 5,200 bucks a year. Yeah. We'd spend 45 minutes figuring out how to save $100 a week, and then we'd spend 15 minutes figuring out how to spend $5,200 a week on making people happy. Uh-huh. You need to earn it. Um, but by the way, I see it all the time in other businesses. Like anyone who's been to Five Guys and has helped themselves to free peanuts. Right. I think that's unreasonable hospitality. They had the wherewithal to recognize that a part of that experience is waiting for your burger to be made. And where every other fast food chain has never spent even a moment of time thinking about how to make people happy during the wait, 
five guys not taking themselves too seriously just put out a big box of shelled peanuts. And by the way, I love it. I always have some peanuts. <laughs> I know a lot of other people that love it too. And can't cost them that much. Right. And it's one of the first things that people think about when they talk about five guys. True. Um, here's the thing. Spending on hospitality, it's not going to have a clearly calculatable return. It's not like you spend $100 on Instagram ads and you can figure out how many clicks or whatever mm-hmm. your conversion rate. It doesn't work like that. Um, there's this economist famous for saying, what gets measured gets managed. It's harder to measure the return on hospitality, but that doesn't mean it matters less. In fact, in many ways, I believe it means it matters more. What about, what about online businesses? Like if you're operating in the digital space, software as a service, uh, that kind of thing, what are, what are some things you can think of that show outra- unreasonable hospitality? I mean, you look at Zappos and the stuff that they're famous for doing in their call centers. Because by the way, online businesses still have dining rooms. They're just called call centers. Right. And they still have servers. They're just called call agents. And I mean, the stories that have come out of the Zappos call center, um, one of the call service people sent an entire box of goodies to a soldier serving in Iraq who called to complain about some shoes that they hadn't gotten. Or um, one time a call service agent spent, I think, 12 hours and 15 minutes on the phone with a disgruntled customer which in most companies would never be allowed. They would consider that a colossal waste of time. One time someone sent flowers to a customer's sick mother. Um, Mm. They were practicing unreasonable hospitality. They weren't in front of someone in person, but they were just doing it over the phone. Pret-a-Manger did something amazing where at Pret-a-Manger, a big, like, uh, fast, casual sandwich spot, if people don't know what it is, it started in the UK. Oh, yeah, yeah, they, they created a program where any cashier in the company was encouraged and it might have almost been required to give away free stuff to the customers. Hmm. Recognizing there's this, it's, I quote him in the book, uh, David Marquet, retired Navy captain, says that in most organizations, the people at the top have all the authority and none of the information and the people on the front line have all the information and none of the authority. The people at Pret had the wherewithal to recognize that the people in the corporate office had no clue who their regulars were, but the cashiers mm-hmm. did. And so they empowered the cashiers to give stuff to regular customers and to show appreciation. Um, by the way, I also think we're on the precipice of a really exciting time um, that helps scale these ideas even further, which is just with all the technology that's available to us that can help scale human connection because i believe if technology doesn't try to replace the human touch but just tries to give humans the tools to be better at providing that human touch that's where i think things could get pretty freaking cool what do you mean by that say a little bit more well a lot of the stuff we did um if you came in once and it was clear to us that you started every meal with a Manhattan and you liked Mm. sparkling water over still. And 
we knew your wife's name and your kids' names and this and that and the other thing. We'd collect all this information. And at the end of every single night, we'd sit down and we'd spend an hour writing notes on everyone and putting them in our systems. So the next time you came in, even if the person that was serving you was totally different from the person that served you the last time, they could kind of get up to date on who you were mm-hmm. such that you felt seen when you were there. Right. But it was unreasonable. It took a ton of human hours to make that kind of thing happen. You start to look at what technology is enabling right now and how it can pull information through a lot of the pieces of software already in place in most businesses. And that's just becoming increasingly automated. Right. So back to your getting rid of the podium, I think part of the secret sauce, and I'd encourage people to check it out for themselves, was most people have a public profile. So if you see my name, you Google me, the host that night memorizes my face, the face of my wife, figures out who's coming and does that a couple times a night for the different seatings. And that sounds impossible, but it's not impossible. And obviously AI technology is going to make that so much easier. Which yeah, is I mean, anyone who's ever been to a Broadway show and seen an actor recite three hours of lines that they committed to memory, it's not that hard to remember 45 people's faces, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> especially when you have a that you're referencing yeah. over the course of the night. It's not okay. hard. It just requires trying harder. That's something I like to say a lot. That's, that's a great way to look at it. Okay, a couple of quick questions before we wrap up. Number one. The Big Brunch, one of my favorite, if, if you like cook-off shows and that kind of thing, it was totally different. It was you and uh, Dan Levy, and there were others involved, but uh, that was a delightful show. It didn't have the usual hype. It didn't have the usual competitiveness, uh, and I just wished I could have eaten some of the food. Any highlights on The Big Brunch? And are you back for season two, or is it a whole new cast with Dan? Um, well, we're going to see... Uh Discovery bought HBO. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we'll see if there is going to be a season two. That's that's not there is. that's not a hundred percent yet. Not a hundred percent. But it was it was a delight. You know, the the highlight of that show for me was we had a thesis that you could create compelling television without fabricating drama. That I could be a judge on a show and act as if I was leading a team at the restaurant. Hmm. That I was there not to make people feel bad when they failed, but to help them learn when they stumbled. And and it was a blast. And the vibes were great. And I think some amazing stuff came out of it. And it was just a true joy to be a part of. Well, I think you get to break the mold. I think that's what I took away from it. You don't have to do the fake drama, which everybody knows is fake drama. And there was a there was a, a, a tone of hospitality around it. And then Simon Sinek published your book, right, through Penguin, which is really cool. I got to tell you, as somebody who reads a lot of books, you paid attention to things like the paper and how, like, I didn't have to crack the binding for it to stay open as I was reading it. Was there unreasonable attention to detail in this book, Will? Um, there was tremendous uh, attention to detail. <laughs> I figured. And in fact, I figured. It's it's like changed. These days, they 
I think it was my first book book. I've done a bunch of cookbooks, but the yeah. first printing was pretty small and it, it's, I'm, I feel very blessed. It's done really, really well. And so I think we're in like the eighth printing right now. Fantastic. And if I had one book from every printing, you could see a little bit of a tweak between every single printing because every time I realize there's another little thing that I want to judge. Ah, well, uh, the paper is magnificent. I don't know what printing this is. I can't see it easily. But uh, yeah, you did what pay attention to all these things. the hard copy on yours? The hard copy, okay, it's just, if I take the dust jacket off, it's just white. Yeah, so now it's oh, yours blue. Is, oh, because now it's Because I like blue. the contrast between the cover and the jacket a little more with blue. Okay, there you go. There you go. So that's the latest, is it? Yeah. There you go. Anyway, well, if people want to track with you online these days, where can they find you? Um, the best bet is uh, Instagram or LinkedIn. W. Gadara. Okay. Great, great, great. And uh, well, I hope this isn't our last conversation. And uh, are there any restaurants you're actively involved in these days if people want to check it out? Nothing just yet, but, but some cool stuff forthcoming. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Okay. And to you, thank you for having me on. And to you and everyone listening, thank you for indulging the two-year-old unbridled joy of my daughter, Frankie. I hope uh, she wasn't too distracting, but it brought me joy while I was talking to you to know that she was having so much fun. <laughs> I think it's fantastic, Will. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate this conversation. Thanks, bud. Man, it was so great to sit down with Will. I so appreciate his insights. And man, his book is fantastic. It's called Unreasonable Hospitality. We're actually reading it as a staff right now. And I hope you learned something today. I did, and I love learning from fields that I've never worked. Well, I did work as a waiter once for about a year. I was terrible. But like, I, I, I love restaurants, but like, I love learning the behind the scenes stuff. And if you enjoyed today and you want more, go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 567 for transcripts and show notes and a lot more. We're also on YouTube with this episode. I would love for you to share it with a friend. If you haven't ever left a rating and review, please do so wherever you're listening to this podcast. And then maybe um, hit the share button and share it, text it to a friend, email it to a friend and say, hey man, you may want to check out this show. When you do that, we get permission to do this week after week after week. And we also do it because of our partners. Check out my free workshop, the Cure Your Culture Workshop, whether you're a church or a business. If you're struggling with culture, and if you're not, you don't think you are, you probably are. Just ask your team members. It's absolutely free. You got nothing to lose. Go to churchcultureworkshop.com. If you're listening after May 8th or 9th, uh, you can actually go to that URL and watch the replay, but I'd love to have you join live. I'll be there and I'm going to take your questions, churchcultureworkshop.com. And then revolutionize the way your church communicates. Go to get.glue.us slash texting. You will get Glue's free texting service. That's get.glue.us slash texting to get Glue's free texting service. Well, we got a lot coming up on the podcast. Michael Hyatt and Megan Hyatt Miller, J.D. Greer, Horst Schultze is coming back, Seth Godin, we got Henry Cloud, Paula Ferris, John Acuff, Richard Foster, Kevin Kelly, Gloria Mark, and a whole lot more. But next episode, Jordan Montgomery. We talk about the pitfalls of success in your 20s, what happens when young leaders are underdeveloped and overexposed. Very fascinated in that subject. And here's an excerpt. I want to be elite in our communication skills, then we have to focus on those things and, and, and work on them because you can't fix what you're unwilling to acknowledge. I said, do you have any idea what your tick is? He says, I really don't. 
I said, well, you say the words, you know, over and over again. It's like a filler statement, you know? And we did this, you know, and then we did that, you know, and then we won the game, you know? He says, yeah, I guess I do say that. I said, well, I'm just, just out of curiosity, how many times do you think you said that in this four minute, 50 second interview? He says, uh, I don't know. What did I say it a dozen times? I said, coach, what if I told you, you said it 111 times Whoa. in a four minute, 50 second interview. That's next time on the podcast. And if you uh, subscribe, you'll never miss an episode. Hey, and I've got something more for you. We love to give away free stuff. And I've got a free newsletter called On The Rise. And you can subscribe to it for free. And what I do is I just find really curious things, things that interest me from my field, church world, but also the business world. Uh, the arts and more and really curious content that I find. We send it out for free every single Friday and you can subscribe by going to ontherisenewsletter.com. About 85,000 leaders get that newsletter every Friday. You don't want to miss out. So just go to ontherisenewsletter.com and I'd love to connect with you there. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. 